Hello, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Emma. Today, we're excited to talk to Caitlin Robertson, who's CEO at Cacti Therapeutics. We've got a fascinating conversation to share with you all today. Largely, we're discussing what differentiates Cacti Therapeutics from other drug discovery companies in the psychedelic space. From unique features that include Black Box, their unique machine learning tool that expedites preclinical drug candidate selectivity, and their interest in the Shulgin Library to find phenylethamines to better treat pain disorders. We also get to learn why Caitlin and Cacti are at the intersection of pain, drug discovery, and psychedelics, and how Caitlin's background in education, immigration, and trauma-informed care, paired with her incredible repertoire of soft skills, are key drivers for their successful navigation through the psychedelic space so far. We're also very lucky to get a sneak peek of Cacti's upcoming raise, so check out the timestamps in the description if you're looking for a detailed breakdown of today's interview. And since I interviewed Caitlin, Cacti has refined their strategy to focus on nosoplastic pain indications and is joining the Texas Venture Lab Accelerator Spring Cohort, where they will formally open a 7 million seed round for 2023. Caitlin also informed me that she's actively on the lookout for a CSO and a new computational biologist for the start of the new year. So be on the lookout for Cacti. They're making lots of big changes. So if you're a potential investor, think you're a good candidate for the positions, or just really like the podcast and you want to speak to her, I highly encourage you to email Caitlin. I've attached her address in the description. Curious is Serious, a psychedelic grads podcast where we interview students and professionals in the psychedelic space to better understand how they navigated the path from being curious about psychedelics to wanting to dedicate their careers to psychedelics. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to keep the online psychedelic grad community platform free for all members and publish these epic conversations. I should mention there were a few technical difficulties, one that even halted our recording around halfway through the conversation. But Caitlin and I were able to pick it up where we left off so you guys can fully enjoy hearing about Cacti and Caitlin's part in it. So without further ado, here she is. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I am great. Other than, you know, technology hiccups driving us crazy. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This is really fun. The last time I was on a podcast, I was talking about migration and I was explaining how the whole global system works from the time a refugee is identified all the way through to the resettlement process and all the policies that impact that and all the agencies that, you know, are serving on the ground and that was the last podcast. And so here we are today talking about a completely different topic, but it's also a part of my journey into this work. So yeah, I'm Caitlin Robertson and I'm the CEO of Cacti Therapeutics. Cacti is in the plural of cactus. We are looking at the phenethylamine family and we're really interested in phenethylamines for pain. I'll step back a little bit because, you know, a lot of people have have heard about this whole emerging psychedelic ecosystem and all the biotechs that have jumped in the space to do drug discovery and development and you know get novel compounds to clinical trials but what i saw over the last few years i i sat back observed what was happening kind of in the wings watching this whole thing emerge and over the last year, especially have seen some key areas that are, you know, gaps in, in what is being offered or unmet needs problems to be solved. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's what entrepreneurs do. They look for a problem that they can uniquely solve and, you know, look for the, the right timing to step in and 
address those issues. And so in, in biotech, in psychedelic drug development, you have a lot of people looking at mental health indications. That's been the primary focus, all mental health indications, but pain is the primary reason that people seek medical treatment. They go to their doctor for pain and the pain market far surpasses all mental health indications, cancer and cardiovascular disease, all of that combined pain, chronic pain, inflammation far surpasses all of that. And of course we know that, you know, often there's like comorbidities. You may have anxiety, depression, addiction that go hand in hand with chronic pain. And so, you know, we don't, we don't know always like which came first, the chicken or the egg. Was it the depression that fed the, the pain or was it starting out in chronic pain that led to deep depression? I have my own story about that before I had back surgery where I was in debilitating chronic pain for over a year and got more depressed than I've ever been in my entire life. So I, I understand like the psychological drivers and, and components of, of that. But anyway, everyone in the psychedelic drug development ecosystem kind of went after the low lying fruit. They went after the tryptamine families, a lot of psilocybin being developed a lot of mushroom companies and, and really overlooked pain as a primary indication and overlooked the phenethylamine family. But phenethylamines are really special because they're in pathogens, which means they, they produce more empathy. It's easier to go to your trauma. When trauma surfaces, they're a gentler, as some would say, a gentler teacher. And they also have been known in, in the history of use around phenethylamines. They were used as they were used for chronic pain and inflammation. So we know that they have, you know, analgesics in them, they have anti-inflammatories. And we're really, really curious about exploring that. That was one, you know, one area that we thought, you know, nobody's really looking at that. And then on the drug development side. You had all these companies that are, that have really skilled teams on the synthesis side of things, like really great biochemists, expert biochemists, synthesizing, designing new molecules, designing, you know, new compounds. But we didn't we didn't see a lot of sophisticated drug development teams. And so after drug discovery comes drug development. And so you have a lot of companies who've spent millions of dollars designing these amazing compounds. And some of them are going to be incredible. There'll be gems in there for sure, like second and third generation psychedelics that will have, you know, better profiles, less side effects than, than the classicals. But how do you take the hundreds that you've developed and synthesized? How do you select the ones that you're going to take forward to clinical trials? Because in all drug development, most drugs fail before clinical trials, like over 90% failure rate, especially in pain drug development. And so you have to get really good at clinical candidate selection. And that's what our team is really good at. They've designed an incredible new technology called Black Box. And uh, that's its own company, Black Box Bio. But that technology is a clinical candidate selection tool. 
And it really helps, you know, helps us see which compound is worth taking to the next step, is worth spending $5 million on developing. So that was our, you know, that was our second big aha moment. Like this is what's missing in the space is, you know, really expert, expert drug developers. And then the third part is around my background, which is the psychotherapy modality pairing with these medicines, because what makes psychedelic medicine so effective and what the FDA will be looking for is the right psychotherapy modality paired with the right medicine for the right indication. And so, you know, being able to select which one is going to be the best for um, untangling chronic pain is, is what we're, what we're doing. So I thought about the networks that I walk in and saw that, you know, I, I really have deep networks of expertise in trauma healing in psychology and psychiatry and networks in neuroscience and drug development. And I thought, wow, psychedelics is such a beautiful opportunity to bring those two worlds together and try to get at the psychological component of chronic pain, the the driver of what, what keeps pain alive in the brain. So that's kind of a lot <laughs> to say that's what that's what we're doing at cacti is is really using our expertise as drug developers and and then in the psychology world too to find the very best therapies for chronic pain conditions that we just don't have good medications for right now it's important to be minimizing those costs along the pipeline from R&D to getting them to market distribution because you're right, the, the failure rate is so high and it takes so long for drugs to even be discovered to possibly even make it through the trials. Even for interest, it could take you know 10 to 20 years to get through that. Taking a computational approach, which is what Black Box and Cacti mm-hmm. is doing, really can minimize the timeline for selectivity and like really trying to hone in on the candidate selection and really say, okay, like we want to go through a broad array, but the way you guys are doing it is so different than what's been done in the past. And even across other drug discovery groups, because you're looking more at the behavioral manifestation in the rodent. So I do think it's, it was so fascinating for me to take a look at it. And I'll be also posting the brochure in the description for this podcast for any of the other listeners. I think everyone would really benefit from hearing a bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, that clinical trials are not used to screen drugs. Mm -hmm. All of the screening happens before the clinical trial and the FDA requires that all new drugs be screened in rodents first. Mm -hmm. And so you can't get around that animal screening. And unfortunately in the psychedelic industry, the assays that are being used right now for screening really don't tell us much of anything. Head twitch is one of the one of the readouts, behavioral readout, but head twitch can appear in non-psychedelic drugs and psychedelic drugs that that don't have, you know, this psychedelic experience. I mean they they use it as like a it's a yes no signal, yes psychedelic, no not psychedelic, but then there are other drugs that also you know, elicit this head twitch. So head twitch is just not a good behavioral readout. It doesn't, it doesn't give us much information about how this is really 
how this is really going to look in a human. So one of the things that cacti is doing, I'm really excited about this, this strategy. We're taking the Shulgin compounds. We're taking the Shulgin library. Mm -hmm. We're screening them with this technology. And basically we're backwards translating. We're saying, this is how these, these classical compounds, this is how these compounds look in humans, but how do they look in rodents? And then once we see how they look in the rodent, model, then we can have a better predictor of, you know, novel compounds. And so it's, it's a predictive tool of the second and third gen novel compounds. If it looks like, you know, if the experiential report is, I felt really nauseated, can we see that nausea in the rodent? If, you know, it was, sedative, if they felt sleepy, can we see that in the rodent and then use those as, you know, predictors of, of our molecule design. Mm -hmm. And the way that you guys are taking that next step is beyond head nodding is that you've identified so many other complex behaviors in these rodents exactly. because of the proprietary flooring for black box, right? Yes. It's a machine learning tool that is, that picks up on animal characteristics that we've never seen before. So this technology, it could be a whole other podcast. You're right. We won't get yeah. into it any further, <laughs> but it is, it is truly transformational technology for all mm -hmm. CNS drug development. So it's, you know, it's not, yes, we're going to use it to understand a psychedelic characterization, but it's for all, you know, neurology, pain drugs, psychiatry drugs. And, you know, it's, 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 brand new technology, although it's been in an iterative stage, like, you know, con continuing to improve upon it, develop out the algorithms right now at, at Harvard Boston Children's Hospital. So we're really excited to have access to it to screen psychedelic compounds. Cacti is such a new company. How has raising been? Like, where are you guys in funding? Yeah. Well, you know, so the fundraising is actually a really fun part of my role because I was doing fundraising in the nonprofit world and I was a director of major gifts. So as you sit, you know, talking to donors about um, contributing to a meaningful project. And so it translates pretty well. I've had to learn a lot more about allocating shares and uh, dilution and you know all kinds of business terms that I didn't in in philanthropy. But so Cacti, yes, we incorporated in June and we are closing a seed round. And like I mentioned earlier, what we're doing with the seed round is fully characterizing psychedelics with this machine learning tool. We're going to fully characterize the Shulgin library and then have algorithms developed that will help the entire psychedelic industry. Anyone that's doing, you know, novel drug development, once we have those algorithms and tools, it will be, like I said, the predictive tool. So we're, we're fully, um, yeah, characterizing it in rodents and, that's that's what we're going to be doing with the seed. And then in 2023, probably early on, we'll initiate a Series A. And yeah, I I have just I, I feel so fortunate to be working with the team that I'm currently working with. But what's not seen, you know, on our website or what's not forward facing are all this other scientists that are ready to join us when we've raised money. And 
that's super exciting to me. Like the people in the wings, both, you know, advisors and people who will come on full-time and help us develop out our, our whole strategy is going to be awesome. And how did it translate working in a nonprofit and now, you know, for-profit raising from VCs or angels? Yeah. You know, it's, it's the same, it's the same sort of thing in that you communicate what the need is, what your strategy is for meeting that milestone. And it was the same way, you know, in philanthropy, I would say we need the X number of dollars to do this project by this date. So here's our pipeline or here's our milestone. So it's very, you know, it's a little different language, but it's the same idea. This is our budget. This is the need. And here's what we're going to do with, with those funds. And I think our whole team has the advantage. Since I worked in the nonprofit world for a long time, I also, you know, I'm looking for the very most efficient ways to do things. And, you know, right now running a lean, mean operation, but I also chose for profit. I chose not to create a nonprofit because I think that we can be more efficient and make a a bigger impact in a for-profit model. So, you know, I admire the need for both, but I think what I'm doing, you know, it fits the for-profit best. So, yeah, I'm just getting out there in front of um, angel investors and pitched to VCs. Um, I've been approached by many (laughs) Once, you know, once they know what we're doing and see our team, I I really haven't had to pursue investors. They've come to us. It's been great. And many people might think that you have a background in neuro and in psych. Can you expand on actually where you were working prior to Cacti and you yes. know, what your higher degrees of education are in? Let's yeah, back. yeah. Let's reverse engineer where you've been. <laughs> yeah, let's, re- let's reverse engineer Caitlin because it, it is interesting. <laughs> I heard someone the other day say that they took the scenic route <laughs> in their career. And I thought, wow, that's, yeah, that's the perfect description because I think we'll, we'll get into this more a little bit later. I will tell you all the things that you will not see on my CV, <laughs> but the things that don't appear on a person's CV often are the, the very skills and you know, gifts and talents and networks that are needed to be successful in the role that they're in. So we have to, we have to be open and and dig a little bit better to really understand, you know, the full complexity of a, of a person's lived experience. So yeah, my scenic route, I, I got my master's degree in human development and psychology from Harvard. And so that, that does map well with what I'm building at Cacti, because again, I'm pulling together those, those human development and flourishing models, the work around early childhood adversity and trauma. That was a big emphasis in the program I did. I also did like a child protection certificate program that really dove deep into how to untangle trauma in the early years and all the work around attachment issues. And and often those things surface in psychedelic experiences too, the attachment traumas, the early childhood traumas. So my that was my training. My master's degree was was in in human development and psych, but really pulling together teams of neuroscientists, neuropharmacologists, pain drug developers, um, and you know using their expertise to to build this company. 
And before that, I got my undergrad degree in education. (laughs) So started out thinking I was going to be a teacher and then moved overseas and started working with refugees. And that changed the whole trajectory of my career path in my 20s and 30s was in the humanitarian field. And I thought I would spend the rest of my life working among, you know, working on refugee issues, advocating alongside those communities, working on migration policy. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years into working for the largest resettlement agency in Texas that the unmet trauma in a system that claims to be trauma-informed really, really bothered me at my core. I just couldn't stand that there was not access to trauma healing tools. The, I mean, access to medical care in general is terrible in Texas, especially if you're you know in an underserved population, but there, was, there just wasn't any support or help. And I felt like I couldn't continue working within a system that wasn't addressing the main, you know, the primary thing that impacts a a human's ability to fully integrate in their community, fully, you know, flourish and thrive. Unmet trauma impacts our everyday, you know, and if you're, if you're ignoring it and brushing it under the rug, you know, it's, it's going to impact your relationships, your ability to hold down a job, all of those things. And so I said to myself, you know, last year, okay, I I'm in my 40s now. I want to spend the rest of my life tackling this issue of unaddressed unaddressed trauma among the populations that I really really care about and right now there's 100 million people displaced worldwide. The refugee crisis globally has just, you know, it's it's out of control. And I would rather, you know, I'd rather spend the rest of my life working on finding the very best trauma healing tools. And interestingly, people with trauma often don't talk about, you know, mental health. I'm anxious, I'm depressed, but they might say like, I have horrible migraine headaches. I have a horrible stomach ache all the time. My back hurts. They'll talk about the pain. And that's, you know, pain is is a symptom of the underlying unmet trauma. Yeah. So wanting to spend the rest of your life focusing on the refugee crisis, it's not mutually exclusive to spending your time at Cacti Therapeutics. And I think you illustrated that so wonderfully just now. The the manifestations behind psychological trauma from being displaced, the psychological trauma from the unhealingness of childhood attachment problems, how that manifests to pain and like the behavioral outputs, like you said, the stomach, the stomach ache, the migraine, like they're all still correlated. The way you've been able to describe not just the specifics of pharmacokinetics and you know drug discovery for the phenylethylenes, but also here talking more on the humanitarian side of your projections and the things you're interested in for cacti. Like, how would you dive in for the listeners too about the, 
the skills that are really important, the responsibilities of being this as a CEO, but also with the mission of Cacti. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your I mean, communication must be somewhere, at least in your top five. Maybe, maybe not because you're also a triathlete. So, you know, there's a big list <laughs> of, top, of top performances here, but maybe we should also dig into some of the skills because it sounds like you're a jack of all trades and a master of a couple. Well, of- we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what we master. Yeah. I think, you know, I think each one of us, like my message to everyone out there who's interested in, or even just exploring any career trajectory or what they might want to do next. You know, we, we do have to be in touch with our heart, with our passions, because that's what, what you can't stop thinking about all day, every day, what keeps you up at night, you know, get in touch with that because that's your core driving passion. But then look at your skill set and look at, you know, what you've, what your experiences have been and how you can leverage those. But then also don't ignore everything that you're capable of learning because each one of us are so capable of, you know, learning new material, acquiring new knowledge. Um, you know, don't dismiss a potential opportunity because you think, I don't have the, you know, I don't have the knowledge for this. I don't have an MBA, but I can learn everything that I need to learn to run a business well. I'm capable of doing that. And that's what I tell myself every day I'm with all the new, yes, with all the new material that I've had to learn for this role, and especially all the new, you know, the neuroscience that I was unfamiliar with. It was like learning a new language. And I just told myself every day, Caitlin, you are capable of learning this. You can do it. And, you know, I think I I do credit my parents, shout out to them. They instilled in me, you know, a a curiosity, run after new knowledge, try to acquire, you know, new insight about yourself and the world. And just that, you know, being unintimidated by what you don't know and, and being willing to be a self-starter run after it. Um, yeah, that was, they, they homeschooled me in a time where it was extremely unpopular to homeschool and that I really didn't like it because I was extroverted and I wanted to be with my friends. But looking back on that, you know, I've, I learned to learn on my own. And so, you know, I, I really feel like there's, you know, I can pick up a book on anything that I need to digest and eventually I'll get it. Might take me two or three times <laughs> on receptors in the brain, but you know, I'm getting it over and over and over again, repetition. I'm acquiring a new set of, of, you know, language and knowledge that's needed. And then you're right. It's about communication, right? Like the ability to commute, to translate what you learn to the people that you need to translate it to and, and mobilize, you know, what, what I'm really skilled at is putting teams together, mobilizing people and ideas and putting the right people and right ideas together at the right time. And that's, you know, that's what makes me a good CEO. With less than 3% of leaders in biotech being women and your skill set being that you can, you know, pull your teams together. How did you build that network or that repertoire in a space that you were previously unfamiliar with? 
Well, that, that does come with time, right? You build your networks over time. So, you know, a young, a young college student isn't going to have all the connections that someone in their forties does, because, you know, I've lived in other countries, I've lived in various cities, but part of building those networks is, is, you know, I would really encourage people when they think about their education, think of it more, uh, think more about the people that you're connected to in that education. Cause you can acquire knowledge from anywhere now, you know, <laughs> thank you, internet. <laughs> thank you books. We can really pick up anything that we, that we need knowledge wise, but people's experiences and expertise and, and their ability to communicate out that knowledge, that's, that's different. And so when I decided to go back to grad school before, uh, right about midlife, I, you know, I was like, well, I could apply to any number of schools with a program centered on, you know, migration or refugee resettlement or policy. I mean, I looked at lots of different programs and ultimately I said, Harvard will give me the very best networks and networks is really like who you're connected to is really what's needed for long-term success. And so I was scared to try to like study for my, the, you know, ERE and have to go back and learn math that I hadn't looked at since my undergrad. And, you know, I was, I was a good student in college. So thankfully, like I had, you know, a straight A student and I had good background from undergrad, but am I really going to try to apply to Harvard? And I was like, yes, yes. And then if, if I don't get in there, then we'll go to the next one that will connect me with the best networks. So yeah, I studied 12 hour days on the weekends and just worked my tail off to try to, you know, get the best test score I could. And then I put together good letters of recommendation from people who had worked with me. And, and ultimately I'm, I'm so, so, so grateful for that year because those are the people I'm working with now. Now I'm pulling together, you know, Harvard neuroscientist and, and psychologist and, and then great scientific teams here in Texas too. University of Texas, Austin, Arlington, Dallas, they have incredible scientific teams too, that I'm getting to work with. So, you know, any, any really big university with robust funding will have, you know, intellectual capital that a networker like me and someone who just puts people and ideas together, will find those people. We search them out and we find them. And going through the heat map and you isolated the proprietary zones to really hone in on and find yourself in Texas. Hi, everyone. It's Emma in editor mode. This is actually where we picked up that technical difficulty I was alluding to in the intro. So we're picking it right back off from the prior discussion actually on women in biotech and in positions of leadership. And while I'm so kindly interjecting, I'm also going to mention that there's a new executive summary that Caitlin emailed me and I'm attaching it to the description. So that being said, back to the podcast. We were talking about women in biotech. There are only 3% of women in biotech. Why is that? How many people feel confident enough in a room full of strangers to throw up a hand and ask a question and really meeting someone afterwards and saying, I like the answer you gave, or I'd like to talk about this further. Here's my card. You know, initiating that type of network and the effects are 
very clear and objective and measurable in the workplace, especially in those roles of leadership. You realize so much more of how you get to the leadership role isn't necessarily who's the most fit for the responsibilities, but you know, who is able to promote themselves actionably enough at the, t- at the right time with the right people. That's right. And you have to be assertive in this space. And I think, you know, women are getting better and better at being more and more assertive, but you absolutely have to, like you said, stick your hand out there, shake a hand and say, I am really fascinated with the research you're doing. Tell me more. Is there a place for me in your lab where I could intern for the summer? You know, there's, there's ways to contribute to science and, and take a supporting role, but get a really good inside view of, you know, what a lab is, is working on and better yet, you know, build out the relationships with the scientists that will then write your letters of recommendation and, you know, give you a leg up and a place at the table, but you have to, you have to be willing to, you have to be unintimidated and, you know, hungry for the opportunity and the learning so much that, you know, nothing deters you. Yeah. And those people that you end up networking with might end up being the people that are your co-founders or on your board for the passion project that, you know, our listeners are saying, you know, I really have something I want to put together, but I'm not sure where my team is. It's okay. Being in college, not knowing exactly where your team is, but know that that is the limitation that you're of the, of the steps you're in right now. And that the next steps in networking and building that up, that's going to be how you make it to that next stage. Right. And that's incredibly where you end up being the CEO of something that, is still completely contained in your interest in resolving, you know, universal trauma and how that manifests from pain and through. Yep. Yep. And everyone can look at their own experiences and again, their skill set, their gifts, talents, and their passion and, and say, where do I fit in this industry? Where can I add value? Uh, what's missing? Where are the gaps? Because, you know, if you're entrepreneurially minded, that's what you're looking at. You know, where do I uniquely add value that, you know, no one else can in this space? And people will find there's, I mean, there's so many different opportunities in what's emerging in the psychedelic ecosystem, so many opportunities. And if you want to be in supporting roles, there's plenty of space for that too. And, you know, from it's, it just runs the whole gamut. You have the whole therapeutic world and all the retreat centers building out their support systems and unique approaches. And then all the way to, you know, traditional biotech trying to design the next best novel compound. And I think there's room for everyone and everyone's passion. And, and there is so much room to innovate. There's a lot more innovation needed in this space. And I, you know, want to continue to nudge people in the direction of, you know, think outside the box. Let's think bigger, bigger, better, and, you know, work together to get there. Would you say that that would be one of your major takeaways in the amount of time that you've been spending in the psychedelic space so far? There's so much more innovation that needs to be done. Yeah, that's a big takeaway for me for sure, but I'm looking at looking at it, you know, from the from the biotech lens 
but also just understanding the systems that we're working within. You know, we are still working within capitalism. We're working within the FDA's regulatory framework, all of these things, drug policy. The reality is, and I, and I am a very pragmatic person, the reality is we're working within these systems and change happens incrementally. That's just the way the world works. We can advocate for the things that that we want the most and try to move the needle toward a more just system, but that change often happens with small baby steps. And I think the whole psychedelic industry needs to look where, you know, look at the the small steps that we can all take together while we're while we push for these bigger reforms too. And one of the big takeaways for me as well is like there needs to be a lot more bridge builders mm-hmm. because I see a lot of animosity between, you know, between biotech, oh, those drug developers <laughs> and, and, you know, and the traditional healers that don't want, you know, don't touch our sacred plants, don't touch the, the medicine. And I think it's not either, or I think we can all work together to bring about better healing tools for humanity and i you know i want i want people to be able to grow their own plants and and have the freedom to take you know health into their own hands and take care of themselves with what they can grow in their own backyard or windowsill of course i want that i want a world where we're not you know criminalizing plants that's ridiculous and where we're also not you know patenting up plant material and everything. And in drug development and in traditional biotech, you have a real opportunity to take nature's medicine and do what we've always done with nature, which man has interacted with nature to improve it. That's why I had a hot shower this morning. That's why I live in a house and I don't camp out all the time. You know, I'm interacting with nature and I'm, you know, building a life around myself that's more comfortable and drug development is the same thing. We're taking plants and we're developing them into, you know, something with what we hope is, you know, less side effects and a better experience. It doesn't always end up that way. We know that. <laughs> there have been plenty of horribly designed drugs that had really negative impact. And I think that will always weigh on me. Um, but I can, you know, I can, I can work toward... What I really want is better therapies for people that can't access the really expensive retreat in another country that, you know, requires a week away from work and a lot of money and a lot of resources. The people that I've worked with in my career, they're not going to be able to access that, but maybe they can take a medication combined with a therapy in a two or three hour experience that helps them untangle their trauma or their pain and, and find some, you know, find healing. The question I was going to ask just about that is one way or another, the innovation that's being driven on the biotech side that decreases the cost of production inherently could also increase accessibility. So in the time that you're spending now, does it seem realer or more of a fantasy to imagine that the approaches of some of the major biotechs and major companies in the psychedelic space can lead to increased accessibility to healing? 
I certainly hope so. That's, you know, that's at the core of our mission is equitable access to care. And that does mean that we have to find therapeutic interventions that fit within the medical model as it currently stands, you know, that mm-hmm. insurance will pick up on that fits within the time frame. You know, that's one of the the biggest challenges right now is a lot of these, a lot of the classical psychedelics are really, really long journey. And that just doesn't fit our medical model. And in order to roll out treatment to all of the people that that need it, we're going to have to design drugs that have a shorter experience. I mean, that's just the most basic, but there's a lot of different aspects of it that, you know, that need to be improved upon. So that's, you know, that's the innovation I see that's needed. And it is around accessibility. You know, I don't want to make a novel drug just for the sake of it, for profit, that doesn't drive me at all. It's the impact on the healing that I want to bring to people who are really suffering. And if you're, you know, if you're someone suffering with chronic headache and you're, and you, you know, many of them that I've talked to have been suicidal because it's so, so miserable. You want a pain therapy yesterday that works for you, you know, and, and yeah, some of these, I, I can't tell those people, okay, well, you know, go to, go to Peru or Costa Rica. And, and I hope, you know, I hope that medicine circle works for you. We've got to continue innovating and pursuing not just, you know, not just novel drugs, but again, the therapeutic pairing, I think we'll get better and better at finding different trauma healing modalities that work with different medicines. We'll optimize those too. Like I'm excited about what what pairs with which medicine for which indication. Mm. Do you think too that bringing psychedelics more into the limelight of you know the the corporate systems and the medical systems? Do you think that also might reduce the stigma associated with psychedelics that have kind of been deemed on them before they were even assessed for medical availability and or use? They were immediately scheduled. Do you think bringing them into the light this way and going through, like you said, the framework that is instilled in the systems that we have today, whether or not we like them, this is what the medical system looks like. So yes, of course, psychedelics can exist outside of that system and they have for a very long time, but as we slowly start to bring them in, could that be also an effect of companies like Cacti looking to bring these compounds into the light and say they're not what they were deemed 60 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think it legitimizes and destigmatizes what, you know, has been I mean, our our drug history in the US is it's terrible and our drug policy is horrible. And that's another big driver for me entering this work is there is overlap between what I've seen in the migration world and our drug policy impacting communities in Central and South America that, you know, Honestly, the people the migrating are fleeing drug violence, fleeing. I mean, I've interacted with both fleeing climate disaster and climate change issues and fleeing drug violence and that we directly influenced by our drug policy. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it's, you know, it's uh, 
the people migrating are scapegoated, but they're the ones that have been disproportionately impacted by our war on drugs, which is really a war on people and a war on our border. And yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of changes that need to happen in drug policy in the U S in general, which will impact immigration policy too, I believe. So that's why I'm really passionate about it, but uh, yeah, I do think it will, it'll help move the needle in the right direction around destigmatizing what, which, which never have had, you know, a stigma in the first place. And, you know, for, as we're closing up, I want to emphasize that decreasing the, the stigma, increasing the legitimacy, increasing the accessibility, the equity to the psychedelic space are fundamental to cacti. What yep. are the limiting factors that you've identified in the time that you've spent so far? And like, how would you maybe speak to the audience, the younger generations, and maybe encourage, you know, how could they answer these questions that you so far have identified, but have yet to answer? Well, again, I think it's like looking at your, you know, looking at what you're uniquely trained in and, you know, where your skill set is, where your networks are and, and what you're passionate about, and then seeing what you can uniquely contribute to the space. But ultimately, I just really believe in people coming together, listening to each group's interest and needs and working toward you know, how can we, how can we improve things together? Like, don't just dismiss one group's idea of, you know, what could be better, but really, really hear each other, challenge your own assumptions. I love Adam Grant's work. Think Again is one of my favorite books. I read it this year and, you know, just the idea of, and it fits the theme of your podcast, like, you know, remaining curious throughout your life and being willing to adapt and pivot to meet a need and acquire the information that you need to meet the need better. But, you know, this is human development. This is human growth. All of us working together to say, Hey, here's, you know, here's a problem that we see or a gap, an unmet need. How can we work together to solve it? And you'd say then that maybe some of the major obstacles that you're experiencing as you're trying to, you know, make psychedelics more accessible to the general public through the work you're doing, the very hard work you're doing. Would you then say that the limitations that you're identifying in the space is is time? Is you think this is something that's going to be it is going to take yeah Yeah. it's going to take time and we've got to patiently be willing to to work at this together i i go to athletic analogies in my head a lot and i think in you know in biotech and in the role that i'm in in particular i have to be able to sprint at times and i have to be able to grind and I know how to set milestones, you know, I know how to work toward a target, work toward a goal and execute on a plan. But there are periods of time that you're really grinding and rethinking your strategy and adapting and pivoting and all of that. And I think, I think the whole ecosystem needs that, the just, you know, sober judgment, here we are, here's where we want to be, what's it going to take to get there, but a patient, methodical approach to, to getting there. And people have been talking lately about 
bursting the hype bubble. And I do think it's time. I think it's time to get away from all the hype around it. There is a lot of reason to hope and, but it's time to, for all of us to come together, patiently grind away at what we can, you know, uniquely add to the space. So in, you know, when I think about accessibility and bringing better healing tools to populations who have been disproportionately harmed by the systems that we live in and by trauma. The, the biggest obstacle I see is, you know, is our healthcare system already is not great for those who are not well-resourced and we need in general for all mental health issues and pain the psychosocial supports that our system needs, we're already, you know, we already don't have enough social workers. We already don't have enough psychologists. There are not, you know, forget the, the drug side of things that psychiatry drugs are not good either. We don't have all of the social supports in place and we need that to flourish as humanity. Like if we're going to grow our communities in a healthier direction, We've got to have better support systems around um, all of these therapies that are going to be rolled out. So I think one of the biggest obstacles is training up enough people to be the support system around the individuals who have just come out of an addiction treatment and, you know, they've, they've walked away clean and healed and ready to start their life anew. But if they don't have housing and stable income and food and friends around them, then they're right back to where, you know, they've started. We've got to build supports around all of this. And I hope a lot more people will enter the space. I should say, I not should say, I'm happy to say I'm enrolled in Psychedelics Today, their 12-month training program. This is their first cohort. So I'm in the first cohort of, we're the guinea pigs. And I'm happy to be the guinea pig for this program because they have done a fantastic job with this program. It's it's 12 months. We meet weekly. We've really developed amazing relationships with all the, you know, with our fellow students and instructors. And we're getting, so this is a training program for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. But what I love about what Vital is doing, they've really done a survey of the entire industry, the entire ecosystem. And you, you know, you learn the neuroscience, you learn the therapeutic pairings, you learn how to do the, how to facilitate and guide. You have an experiential journey yourself. It's a holistic approach to training therapist and how this will all roll out. And it's given me a really good understanding of, you know, how this, where, where the needs are and how this is all going to roll out in the future. So they've just done, they've done an incredible job and our instructors come from every aspect of this ecosystem. And it's been fantastic. Really, really thankful for them. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Shout out psychedelics today. Yeah, uh, great crew. 
and, you know, podcast. Hey, anybody interested in this? Like there are so many great podcasts now to listen to. That's how I learned a lot about who was doing what was listening to psychedelics today, business trip, Brom Rector's podcast, your all's podcast. I started like picking the interviews that I wanted to, Oh, what's this company doing? Or what's this therapist about? Um, and man, it's, it's helped me. It's helped me personally too. I just recently learned about not just internal family systems as a therapeutic modality, but emotion-focused processing, emotion-focused therapy, which is incredible. And I'm like doing a deep dive into that now. So podcasts can be the inspiration that we all need to, you know, dig into any particular topic. Oh yeah. I want to learn more about that. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, education's at our fingertips right now, right. Or, you know, at the Celia in our ears, they're right there. Either you listen to it on a podcast, you pick up a book from Amazon, you get an ebook on the, you probably find most of them as PDFs on the internet, but everything's at your fingertips. And from there, it's also networking and getting to know people is all right there. We're on the brink of, if not experiencing currently radical transformation change in the way that we operate as a unit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so. It's great that Cacti is here for it. It's it's great that psychedelic grads here for it. I'm glad you, Caitlin, is here for it. I'm glad I I Emma is here for it. And we got to put out even this podcast. Look at us. Yes. It's been it's been such a pleasure. This is, you know, this is what I love about my job. I love meeting the people that are also working toward ultimately like allevi- alleviating suffering and bettering humanity. Like we're all driven by the impact that we want to make for the better. Like we want our earth to be healed. We want people to be healed. We want, you know, a whole flourishing society. And it's awesome to get to work with people like that every single day. I can't imagine a better job. So anyone that would also want to be contributing to these conversations with you, is there a way that they could get in contact and maybe reach out to you after this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm Caitlin Seymour Robertson on LinkedIn. You could email me. I'm pretty responsive within. Mm -hmm. I tried my 24 hours is what I try to, you know, always respond within. My email is kate at cactitx.com. So K-A-I-T at C-A-C-T-I-T-X.com. And then if you want to follow my personal life, I'm all about it. I'm on Instagram at Caitlin Robertson. So oh, nice. you'll see a lot of puppies and a lot of kids and some of my racing, but yeah, I'm terrible with social media and I'll, I fully admit I'm terrible with it, but I, you know, I'm also like my authentic self. Yeah. There's no jig there. You got to just, <laughs> yeah. it. you'll get the real me that way. Thank you all for listening. If you liked our podcast and you'd like to connect with like-minded spirits, jump on over to the Psychedelic Grad community. If you're looking for psychedelic studies, field announcements, job openings, and community monthly meetings, you can sign up for the Psychedelic Grad newsletter with the link in the description. If you liked what you heard on today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review. I hope to see you back here for our next episode.